Hello and welcome to Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S. Asia Institute's summer podcast series where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with first-hand knowledge of Asia. Today, we are honored to have with us Kishore Mabubani, a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute of the National University of Singapore, or NUS. Mr. Mabubani was with the Singapore Foreign Service for 33 years, with postings in Cambodia, Malaysia, Washington, D.C., and New York, where he twice was Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations and served as president of the UN Security Council in January 2001 and May 2002. He joined academia in 2004 when he was appointed the founding dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at NUS. In the following clips, Professor Mabubani speaks about his works on the rise of Asia, the logic of one world, and the future of Singapore. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. We begin the episode with Professor Mabubani introducing his current and past work in academia and diplomacy. My name is Kishore Mabubani. I'm currently a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. And I've come here, I guess, after completing two different careers. First, I spent 33 years in diplomacy from 1971 to 2004 in the Singapore Foreign Service, where I had two stints as Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations. That also included two years at the United Nations Security Council in 2001 and 2002. And after completing my diplomatic career, I became the founding dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore from 2004 to 2017. So I've had the great pleasure of having two very distinct and different careers uh, in my life. Perfect. So, Prof. Mabubani, throughout the years, you've written extensively both on the topics of Asia's rise in the 21st century, but also on the logic of one world. So can you describe and explain these ideas a little to our listeners? You're absolutely right. I've written about the return of Asia. I've also written about the um, creation of one world. And even though both have happened at the same time, they need not have happened Mm. (laughs) at the same time. But the fact that both are happening at the same time does mean that the world has to deal with two major structural challenges at the same time. The first structural challenge, of course, is caused by the return of Asia, which was uh, in some ways inevitable, because from the year 1 to the year 1820, for 1800 of the last 2000 years, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. And it's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off, followed by North America. So the past 200 years of world history, if you view them against the backdrop of the past 2,000 years of world history, were always a major historical aberration. Uh, All aberrations come to a natural end, so it's perfectly natural to see the return of Asia. But what's significant is that this return of Asia has coincided 
although you can argue that Ritanavesa was sort of caused by it, coincided with a period of massive globalization where we have in essentially created one world. And we now live in a very small interdependent world, which uh, the late Secretary General, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan described as a global village. So if you live in a world that is shrinking, where you see Asian power and influence expanding, then it's quite natural <laughs> for the other occupants of one world, especially the West, mm -hmm. to feel threatened by the return of Asia. And if you want to understand the geopolitics of today, it can be explained quite simply by the fact that we have to deal with these two structural challenges at exactly the same time in history. And how do you see this conflict between these two structural forces manifesting in, in our world today? I, I, you, you see this conflict manifesting itself in many of the international organizations that were set up at the end of World War II. And, and in some ways, the West, especially the United States, was very generous in creating a new multilateral order that enabled the rich, prosperous societies of the West to succeed but also enable the rest of the world to eventually succeed. So this, this multilateral order, which was a gift from the West to the rest, actually ended up helping the rest quite a bit. And that's why you've seen the return of Asia. But having seen the return of Asia, suddenly the West has got to learn to share power now. Uh, with the newly emerging countries. And there is some reluctance. And you can see, for example, if you look at the two most powerful international economic organizations in the world, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, you still have a rule that says that to become the head of the IMF, you must be a European. And to become the head of the World Bank, you must be an American. And so 88% of the world's population uh, cannot qualify to run the two most powerful global economic organizations. And that's that rule is clearly an anachronism that reflects a world where Asia was sleeping. But now that Asia has woken up and the most dynamic economies are in Asia, the, the largest share of the global economy is now held by Asia, it seems strange that Asians are not qualified to run either the, either the IMF or the World Bank. Mm -hmm. So this shows you how the resurgence of Asia creates tensions for the one world order that we have. Okay, so speaking about the rise of Asia, is the rise of Asia a uniform rise? Actually, the rise of Asia, it's a rather complex story. It began first with the re-emergence of Japan. And as you know, Japan was the first society to... Uh, successfully modernized after the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s, and that's over 150 years ago. But eventually, Japan's success inspired other Asian countries 
And then the success of the Four Tigers inspired a few Southeast Asian countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand to also do well. And interestingly, that subsequently led to China asking the question, why are all the neighbors of China doing well when China is not doing well? So then China learned from the success of its neighbors, opened up, had the four modernizations, and China has become the fastest growing major economy in the world over the last 40 years. And over time, India also decided to join this process. And uh, the Indian economy has also been doing very well uh, over the last 30 years. So you can see how there has been a, a, a ripple effect uh, caused by the reemergence of Japan 150 years ago. And, and, and Japan's success basically has led to other Asian countries opening up and joining the modern world. Okay, so today, what role does China play and how does it put forth a different world order? I think clearly China's re-emergence has completely changed the world dramatically. And just to give you some sense of how dramatic it is, in the year 1980, in purchasing power parity terms, China's economy was only one-tenth the size of the economy of the United States of America. But by 2014, China's economy had become bigger in purchasing power parity terms. So clearly, that's a, it's a very different world when China goes from being one-tenth of America's economy to having an economy that's bigger than America's in PPP terms. So clearly, this has shaken up the world. Uh, it has certainly given the United States of America a big shock. And so in some ways, quite logically, quite inevitably, quite naturally, you are seeing the beginning of a major new geopolitical contest between the United States and China. So today, it seems that one of China's major projects and initiatives is the Belt and Road Initiative. So how can we understand the Belt and Road Initiative in the context of Asia's rise and the construction of this new world order? Well, the Belt and Road Initiative is in theory an economic initiative. It's a plan by China to help its neighbors to develop its uh, in, to develop their infrastructure, their ports, their roads, their railways. Uh, by the same time, you want to also see the Belt and Road Initiative as uh, a geopolitical uh, initiative also, because clearly China has anticipated that at some point in time, the United States of America would wake up and try to contain it as the United States has successfully contained the Soviet Union. So in a preemptive strike against an American containment policy, China has begun to share its prosperity with all its neighbors. And as a result, uh, very, very few of China's neighbors will be prepared to join a containment policy against China because they will be, they would have to pay a very heavy economic price for doing so. So even a very close 
even America's closest ally in the Asia-Pacific region, which is Australia, would have to commit economic suicide if it decides to join a containment policy against China. Okay, so shifting more into talking about Singapore more specifically, your book, Can Singapore Survive?, discusses the future of Singapore as an independent city-state. What prompted the writing of this book, and what were some of your main arguments in that book? The the, the book was prompted by um, Singapore's 50th anniversary taking place in 2015. And one of the most shocking statements I make uh, I made in 2015 is that not since human history began as any country uh, so quickly and so comprehensively improved the living standards of its people as well as Singapore did in its first 50 years. Now that's a very strong claim to make. And to my surprise, no one has challenged it. So Singapore's success as a, as a newly independent country has been truly extraordinary. The first 50 years have been remarkably successful. But one lesson of history is that when countries are exceptionally successful, they can become arrogant and complacent. So my, my, my book, Can Singapore Survive?, uh, was intended as a friendly warning to my fairly fellow Singaporeans to, to not become arrogant or complacent because they, new challenges will come Singapore's way and Singapore would have to continually reinvent itself and adapt to a changing world. And so what do you see as the country's status today, um, either as a leader in the ASEAN region or on a global scale? Well, I think Singapore, uh, as you know, has only has 5 million people uh, and only 3.2 million citizens. So it's far too small uh, as a country to be any kind of leader in the ASEAN region or on a global scale. But there's, at the same time, it's also true that Singapore's economic, political, social, educational, cultural success has inspired its neighbors in the ASEAN region and has also inspired many countries uh, around the world. So it's good to have positive role models in the world because when you have positive role models, uh, other countries can learn uh, from the positive role model. And it is a fact that many countries have learned from Singapore's success and are also succeeding because they followed some of Singapore's formulas for success. And do you see Singapore's role evolving in the next 10 years or 50 years? Well, I think Singapore uh, is going to face some challenging times, uh, especially in the next 10 years, because there is going to be a rising geopolitical contest between Uh, the United States of America and China in the next 10 years. And Singapore will be put in a very difficult position because it has very close defense and economic ties uh, with the United States of America. 
it also has very good uh, economic and cultural ties with China. So the most difficult thing for Singapore will be to be put in a position where it has to choose between the United States and China. And I think Singapore will insist on not making a choice. It would like to have friendly relations with both United States and China. Okay, so speaking on the topic of U.S.-China relations, you recently submitted a book manuscript on the topic of the U.S.-China relations. So could you uh, just briefly describe to our listeners your understanding of the current U.S.-China trade war? Well, I think it's a mistake to call it a trade war. I think what you're seeing is not a trade war, but the first round of um, emerging major geopolitical contests within the world's number one power, which today is the United States of America, and the world's number one emerging power, which today is China. And throughout history, whenever the world's number one emerging power is about to become bigger than the world's number one power, inevitably you you get an increase in geopolitical tensions and you get some kind of major geopolitical contests breaking out. So the trade war is only the opening round of a major geopolitical contest within the United States and China and soon it will spread to other dimensions like it has spread to the technology dimension where the United States campaigning against Huawei it will spread into the military dimension. And also, even in the political dimension, you will see a contest between the United States and China. So I think we should all be prepared in the next 10 years or 20 years for this contest. And this is why I've just uh, finished writing a new book on the future of US-China relations which will be published by Public Affairs in New York in early 2020. And the title of the book, somewhat provocatively, is Has China Won? Question mark. So with regards to the conflicts that have to do with trade, how much you expect these conflicts to evolve in the near future? Well, I think nobody can predict uh, what the outcome uh, of this trade war will be because it is not just driven by uh, international considerations, it is also driven by domestic considerations. So if the trade war, for example, uh, uh, results in a global slowdown, and if the trade war um, results in, say, the US economy slowing down to in an elections year, it would be perfectly rational for President Donald Trump then to call off the trade war to enable the U.S. economy to do well again so that it will help his re-election. So you can see that while in theory a trade war is driven by international considerations, it can also be driven by domestic uh, political considerations. 
Okay, I feel like recently um, there has been a lot of discourse on the trade conflict and how that has affected some other countries in Asia, such as those in Southeast Asia, who may be benefiting from these trade conflicts. So as a whole, how might the trade in conflict impact Asia's rise in influence? And that may be for China or maybe for other countries in Asia. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, after the trade war began, when foreign investors decided to diversify and depend less on uh, manufacturing and production in China, they have shifted some production facilities to countries like India and Bangladesh. So in the short term, some other Asian countries have benefited from the trade war. But I can tell you that no Asian country wants this trade war to continue. Because at the end of the day, this trade war is going to damage not just the United States and China, it is also going to damage the global economy. And the, as you know, global trade has already begun to slow down uh, as a result of this trade war. So if you did a poll of all the countries in Asia, they are all hoping and wishing that this trade war will come to an end soon so that the global economy and global trade can continue to grow well again. So in considering how Asia has entered into discourse in the West and how we have seen the rise of Asia, is there anything in particular that you would like listeners to know about the rise of Asia and anything that you think that they should look out for in the next few years or in the next few decades? Uh, I think your listeners, especially listeners in the West, should be celebrating the rise of Asia because the only reason why the Asian countries are succeeding today is because, as I document in my book, Has the West Lost It, they have been provided the gift of Western wisdom. And the West, as you know, was the first civilization to successfully modernize and successfully transform itself. Initially, the West used its power to colonize and dominate the world. But over time, the West also shared the gifts of Western wisdom with the rest of the world. I'll just give you one concrete example. The idea of free market economics of Adam Smith is, a, is an example of Western wisdom. That idea has been shared with the rest of the world. So if you want to understand why Asia is coming back, why the Asian countries are succeeding, is because they have finally understood, absorbed, and are implementing many elements of Western wisdom. So when the West sees the success of Asia, the West should not feel threatened by it. The West should celebrate it because the other Asian countries are basically trying to become, like the Western countries, successful modern middle-class societies. So we like to end all of our episodes with a fun question, and so we would like to ask you what was your favorite book to write and why? Uh, I would say the the book that I enjoyed writing was my latest book, which is called Has the West Lost It? Because it was uh, is by, by far the shortest book of mine. It's only 20,000 words as opposed to the usual 80,000 words. So I could write it uh, quite fast. And I was pleasantly surprised to discover that a short book of 20,000 words, which can be read in about in an hour or two, can have as much impact 
as a longer book because it's been translated into Portuguese, Dutch, and into French with a foreword by the former French foreign minister, Hubert Vedrin, and has been translated into Italian with a foreword by the former Italian prime minister, Enrico Letta. So it's a real joy to discover that a short book of 20,000 words can have as much impact as a longer book of 80,000 words. Thank you so much, Professor Mabubani, for speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you too. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at USAsiaInstitute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.